Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 139, A Surfer's Quest to Find Zen on the Sea. This week, we speak with the author of Saltwater Buddha, Jamal Yogis, about his experience as a Zen surfer and young Buddhist. We also explore with Jamal the incredible power of the ocean as a spiritual metaphor. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vince Horn, and I'm here today with our special guest. He's joining us from the West Coast. Jamal Yogis. He's a Zen practitioner, surfer, journalist, and author of a recently released book called Saltwater Buddha, A Surfer's Quest to Find Zen on the Sea. Did you find Zen on the Sea, Jamal? Yeah, I mean, in a, in a manner of speaking, I think in the same way that surfing for me is just part of my practice. It's just like coming back to the meditation cushion every day. And Zen, in its, in its literal meaning, as far as being, you know, this dhyana, this kind of concentration that is sort of encompasses everything. I wouldn't claim to have found what the, the Zen masters are sort of referring to, but I do find that returning again and again into the water, it's like a daily baptism for me. It's just a way to get back to, to sort of rinse clean. And it literally kind of washes, feels like it washes my thoughts into a more ordered manner or something like that. So it's just another meditation practice. And I think having a physical practice uh, is really important as a meditator, something that keeps you connected to nature, something that keeps you in good health. And surfing is a wonderful type of meditation as well because there's a lot of movement and you are doing this thing where you're riding waves and you kind of are merging with your element with your medium, but you're also doing a lot of waiting around. So there's a lot of time where you're just sitting, looking at the horizon and, you know, you can focus on your breath or just sort of be in that appreciative space, which I think appreciation is very close to our true nature. You know, the more appreciative you are, I think the closer you are to being in that natural mind. That's what I've found, you know, a big enlightenment epiphanies, but definitely a daily ritual that that keeps me keeps me sane. <laughs> I figured, you know, because Saltwater Buddha is really kind of like an autobiographical work, you wrote about this this particular period in your life where you were exploring Zen meditation, you know, in your late teens and twenties, and also at the same time ex- exploring surfing. And uh, so, yeah, given that it's such an interesting combination, it's one that, as a Buddhist practitioner, I'd never heard before. So I was wondering if you could say a little bit about the time that you wrote about in this book and some of the highlights that you found most uh, prescient during that period. Sure. It's a, it's a broad topic. The book covers a pretty large span of time. It starts off when I ran away to Hawaii the age of 16, and I was sort of a mischievous teenager getting into trouble, you know, experimenting with just pushing the limits of the law, basically. And so I was on probation for getting 
a DUI and stuff, and I, I knew that I wasn't sort of living my truth at that time. I wasn't living to my potential, really, and I think that dreams can play a big role as guidance, and I started having these dreams about water and about waves and about islands, and this was going back to sort of a flashback in time for me when I was living in the Azores, Portugal. My dad was stationed there when I lived close to the ocean, and then we moved inland, and so there was something about that time period, that connection that I had with the ocean that was coming back to me, you know, 10 years later, and that was all I knew at that point, because I was, I was really, at this point in my life, not that connected to myself and to my heart. And so all I had was this glimmer that I needed to change. And it came in the form of this, of water, these dreams, of islands. And so I took off. I went to, to Maui. I ran away. I left this note on my parents, on my bedroom pillow saying, you know, I'm somewhere in the world. And that created a lot of havoc and it wasn't the most compassionate thing to do to my family. So what it did do is it stirred things up enough. It was kind of like sometimes you just need to make a break or really make a big change in your life to get onto a different path. And that was really the beginning of my spiritual path. And that's where the book starts. And when I go to Hawaii, I happen to take Siddhartha by Herman Hess with me. And I had been around meditation in my life. My parents were meditators, and that's where I got my name. I was named after this Indian guru in the the Sikh tradition. But I never really had done any of it myself. And so surfing was this incredible challenge for me that I took on. I decided to stop doing any drugs, or I was going to change my life. And, And surfing was this challenge that I took on to help me and it seemed like the intuitive thing to do and then I, I was also reading about the Buddha's life or Herman Hesse's sort of you know, adaptation of the Buddha's life and I also began meditating and so they kind of just always melded together and I saw all these parallels I think because surfing is, a, is an incredible challenge people do it for 10-20 years and you still feel very far from mastery and so it's similar to meditation in that way in that you can do it every day for many years. It's still, it's like your mind is always throwing you a new challenge and the ocean is always throwing you a new challenge. And I started seeing the ocean really as a metaphor for the mind. And that was the way that my practice developed over the next 10 years where I was, I ended up living in a Buddhist monastery and going and traveling to different surf places. But I think because I'd, had begun my path with these two things, sort of growing up together, meditation and surfing, they, they just blended together. And I, I used the ocean as a metaphor in my meditation, and I used surfing as a, sort of a tool for meditation. And So I could say more about that, but I don't know. Is there a particular part of the book that you wanted to hear about? I can talk about it. No, I mean, I think what you just said gives a nice kind of overview of the kinds of things. And we can go more into the specifics. And you started talking a little bit about the ocean and how it's a metaphor for meditation and how meditation's a tool yeah. for surfing and so on. And I mean, that's one thing that struck me. I mean, this is a powerful and ancient theme in almost all the world's traditions, at least the ones that are probably near the ocean, um, where mm-hmm. uh, you hear about the waves and the ocean. And um, 
it's usually used mm-hmm. as a metaphor, right? Like it's it's a way to describe something. But I'm thinking for a surfer, it must be a little bit more real for you. It must be a little more uh, tangible for you. And I was wondering if you could say a little more about that particular metaphor. Yeah. So there's a few metaphors that get thrown out there a lot in mystical traditions. And one that I really like is that we are like waves on the ocean. A wave is basically, it starts with wind blowing on the surface of the ocean. It turns up some ripples, and those ripples become like sails. They catch more of the wind's energy. And the wind is basically pumping energy into the water, and it begins to spiral, and it becomes this thing. It takes form. It comes into being, at least appearance-wise, as a separate kind of entity traveling across the ocean. You see this swell. Swells kick up on the sea, and they travel hundreds of miles until they break ashore. Energy in motion stays in motion until it hits the sand, and then the waves kind of take its most hard form, and it pitches into that beautiful concave thing that we see on the beach and surfers love to ride. The neat thing about that is that waves look so like a portion of water that's moving across the ocean, but what's actually happening is the wind is just transferring, wind energy is just transferring between molecules. So if you leave a little stick on top of the ocean floating and the wave moves by, the stick will stay in one place and the wave will just pump through it. It's completely energy. And it's similar to the way we are, you know, it's like we feel like we're kind of this separate mass. We feel like there's a veil between us and nature or something. Like we are independent. Like a wave, there's no one atom or molecule that was in me or you when we were babies that's in us now. You know, we've been replenished many times over and what holds us together is this sort of mind or our memories and thoughts and and similarly with a wave, it looks like a separate thing, but it's never, ever, ever apart from the ocean, from this thing that encompasses all the waves. And so it's a great metaphor, right? It's like we just talk a lot about how you do have a self, it's not, but the self is illusory in some sense. And how is it illusory? Well, because it is connected to all things and all places. And that does seem like an abstract concept and I think if I wasn't a surfer I would take that wave metaphor and I would get it and be like oh that's a good metaphor but it wouldn't really sink in deep and when you are following the waves and you're studying them obsessively as surfers do you really start feeling how these how this energetic body of water works and how these things really can have individual character and also be part of the sea and I think it just deepens the metaphor and it makes it much more real and it continues to come back to you every day as well. Practice is very repetitive and it's made that way on purpose. We have to be reminded of these things every day. Why? Because our patterns are so ingrained that it takes an incredible amount of energy and focus to change our habits and so being reminded of that metaphor every day is something that I'm incredibly grateful for. And you don't need to be a surfer to be reminded of that, but you can find your own metaphors. You know, I love that quote that the Avatamsaka, that the earth speaks Dharma. 
you know, I think whenever you're outside and you're just sort of connecting with the natural world in a way that deepens your relationship to it, you find these dynamic metaphors. And this one is a good one, you know, that you can use, but it doesn't, it's not the only one. Thank you for that. It's cool. And just so people know, I mean, your book is really, it's chock full of metaphors along those lines. And it's, it's really deep in that way. It's a really interesting and complex metaphor itself, the entire book. So, yeah, thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So you're 29 right now, and you're going to be turning 30 pretty soon. So you're mm-hmm. kind of part of this, uh, we, we could call younger generation in, in the Buddhist world. And one thing we like to touch in on a lot here in Buddhist Geeks is how Buddhism is being understood and practiced by people that are in the younger generation, in the kind of third, fourth generation of Buddhist practice here in the West. And I think part of the reason is just because I'm young (laughs) and I'm interested in that. Mm -hmm. And then part of the reason is because people have really responded to it. The times that we have explored that, people that listen to the show really find that interesting. So given that you're part of this kind of younger generation and given that you started in your late teens and have been practicing now for over a decade, I figured it'd be cool to get your take on what it's like being a younger Buddhist and how it's maybe distinct from past generations. Because we clearly live in a very different time. Yeah. You know, the main generation that I've watched that isn't my own is my parents' generation. And there's the obvious difference that they were getting interested in practice in the 60s and so, you know, it was associated with drugs and, and the political movements that were happening at the time. And it was such an upheaval and I think it was probably a very exciting time to be a part of and, and a lot of sincere practice going on. But it was almost like there was a huge, it was just like everything was getting thrown out of the pot. <laughs> like free love and meditation and LSD and screw Nixon and and it is all part of it. There's nothing, nothing necessarily wrong with that. I think there was a lot, a huge emphasis in that generation on these new experiences. We're not going to be part of the mundane world. We're going to do something utterly different, and it's about breaking down the system. And, and I think especially because there were a lot of drugs, it was like the spirituality was associated with them saying that it's supposed to be like fireworks and crazy trips and, you know, it's like you're on a high, you know, that's one way to go about it. But what I see in this generation that excites me is that there really seems to be a desire to live in the world and take the structures that we have and infuse them and be able to to bring practice into them and bring a truthful, balanced way of life into the world that we have. And in doing so, you know, make the world a better place. I think we needed that raucous break from the more sort of entrenched pattern of norms that was happening back in the 50s and 60s to give us the gift of being able to now, in this generation, sort of say, well, it's not all bad. Maybe I want to live in have a, a normal job and have a family and also live in a way that is true and in a way that's in harmony. And, and I think that's neat too, because 
there really isn't anything about practice that I think should make everyday life so bad. I think what practice in its most profound sense just makes the most mundane things in life kind of juicy. Just having an English muffin with your grandma kind of a thing. Like that moment is just as full, you know, as being at the at the dead concert, you know. <laughs> it's like trying to integrate practice into the everyday is that's how it becomes grounded in a society and a culture and begins to become sustainable, you know, because we're still really in this process where Eastern thought and ideas and practice are still kind of just like trickling into our society and they become, in some ways, they become just like pop sort of wisdom that, and that takes its effect. And then, but real practice that happens on an everyday level and really infuses your life you know, that's still sort of trying to be worked out. I see, you know, people doing that in a really beautiful way in our generation, and, and hopefully, you know, it will continue. But it's still, you know, there are challenges. Uh, I still find being a young Buddhist, I, I've sort of drifted in and out of having a really tight-knit community of like-minded, like similarly aged buddies to practice with. And when I lived in the Buddhist monastery when I was 18, it was this amazing time where all of a sudden I had, it was just sort of the way that it worked. Everyone was getting out of high school, and for some reason there was this group of guys and girls who were really interested in like practicing a lot, and we would go on retreats together. And just to have that, those group of people who weren't interested in partying a lot, and you know, it was like our college years, and here we were just wanting to go up to the monastery and be quiet. And then, you know talk about it and that was such a powerful time to have those three or four years where I had community in my early 20s and it really laid a foundation and I'm still friends with all of those people and we've now we're busier and we have jobs and partners and whatnot but Kerouac I remember I said like 18 is such a great time to practice the Dharma and I think you are in kind of like a fearless really open space at that time and uh, a healthfully idealistic space. Yeah, I could say more about that, but I think community is is really important, and I'm I'm glad to see things like Dharma punks and other young practice groups springing up, and I'm hoping Saltwater Buddha will bring some like-minded water folks together who are spiritually minded, because there's a lot of them out there, but surfing is kind of like a kind of funny, like, has a little bit of, like, a too-cool-for-school attitude that when you join, you're kind of, like, a little bit cautious about, you know, letting people know your (laughs) true self. So I'm hoping that this will help people, like, take down their guard a little bit and just get together and sit together or whatever it is that they do. Nice. Would you say that part of the reason you wrote the book was to actually get this kind of material out to the surfing community itself, more so than the... Say the Buddhist community? No, it was both. It was, uh, I think a lot of surfers have an interest in Buddhism, but maybe they're always surfing, so they haven't really in. Surfing was one of those things that tends to like, take over your life. So I definitely, I hope people who are sort of wanting that introduction could get it through this, and that surfers already had a Buddhist practice and might deepen it. 
But I also thought, hoped that Buddhist practitioners and, and really anyone would just kind of relate to the water metaphors. And the, that's been true. I get more letters probably from people who are just sort of like, you know, I'm, I don't meditate, I don't surf, but I really, there's something about this metaphor that I really connect with that's helping me in my life. And I think there's something universal about water. We are made of water. Life is made possible by water. It really is like this special sort of magical juju that just makes life on earth possible. And life, as far as we know it, possible. It has all these incredible properties that no other substance on the earth has. And we use a lot of water metaphors in our life. Like we're always saying, like, oh, I'm in the flow today, you know, I'm, I'm drowning in work. These things are close to us in our language. We come from the sea originally. And um, so I was just kind of hoping to like tap a little bit of something in our collective unconscious about something that we all already know but maybe need to be reminded of. Well, thanks, Jamal, for taking the time to join Buddhist Geeks and share a little bit about your book and also about your perspective as a as a young Buddhist practitioner. It's been really cool talking to you and uh, wish you the best moving forward. Thanks so much, Vince. This seems like just a great show. I'm really happy that it's out there and yeah, I'm excited to tune in in the future. So keep on checking. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference. Hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.